0: Welcome to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, a ministry of the Ezra Institute, where we equip current and emerging Christian cultural leaders with biblical worldview, Christian philosophy, and cultural apologetics studies through residential training programs and print And digital resources. We're so glad that you're joining us today. I'm Dr. Michael Thiessen, Together here with Dr. Joe Boot, and today we are joined by a special guest, lawyer and professor and fellow at the Ezra Institute, Dan Ogden. Welcome to the show, everyone. And y'all are in Texas, correct?
1: That's right, Michael. Yeah, it's. um, uh, I'm. uh, I'm actually in. Well, I'm in Texas right now because I'm going to be speaking at. uh, Baylor this evening uh, and uh, and then I've got conferences um, in uh, well nearby uh, at the end of the week towards the end of the week and then uh, speaking in San Antonio on the on the weekend I've just come from Denver Colorado so I'm on a, a sort of 10-day uh, a mini speaking tour in the US right now so it's great to be here and be and be staying with um, my my friend and our fellow at the Institute um, Dan Ogden
0: So everybody, part of the reason why Joe uh, comes around and shares the message of the Ezra Institute is so that you as young adults and young families can increase your understanding of life, culture, and faith. And so we want you to be aware of all of our summer programs. You know, that's what Joe's here speaking. He's sharing, teaching, and trying to encourage all of you to come to some of our uh, week long residential programs. So, we want you to transform your worldview. We want to stimulate your Christian critical thinking. We want you to engage with like minded peers. And we have a number of opportunities this summer. You can go to the Ezra Institute.com and see our training programs. But just so you hear about it right now Worldview USA is, uh, July 12th to 18th. It's in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. That is our, uh, youth worldview program. We have, uh, the same program happening in, uh, Ontario in Port Colburn at the Rathfon Inn, and that's going to be July 28th to August 2nd. And then uh, wrapping up the summer, uh, Joe's coming back across the pond and we're running a F- Ezra family camp, August 25th to 28th. So, Uh, Please go to our website and look at these events. We want you to sign up. Uh, We're trying to emphasize the family. So dads and moms, we need you to come to some of these programs to be trained yourself. And of course, young adults, uh, we want to encourage you and strengthen you as you go face this changing culture. So Joe and Dan, today we're going to tackle the topic of the rise of anti-Semitism. This is happening as a phenomenon all around the world right now. I thought I'd start our conversation just with the breaking news coming out of Zambia, where Zambia is now joining South Africa and presenting their position to the International Court of Justice, where they're regarding Israel's response to the October 7th massacre by Hamas. They're now regarding Israel's response as war crimes and illegal occupation. And so this is something that uh, we were warned about if you were listening to kind of any online commenting where we what we saw the massacre we saw the awful um uh, barbaric uh, events that happened back in October by Hamas and we were warned immediately that it wouldn't be just weeks before Israel was now painted as the villain. So Joe, this is a topic that's close to our heart. We certainly don't want to be a part of this rise of racism and anti-Semitism. Why don't you just continue to talk about your concern for this as it seems to be a growing problem?
1: Yes. Thanks, Michael. For some time now, um, I have been remarking and commenting on this. And I think we did a show a few weeks back where we talked a bit about Israel, the kingdom um, and uh, the the challenge that we're we're facing now with the the rise of Islamism in in particular. Um, but we thought uh, this week we wanted to to interrupt our series a little bit on the family just briefly because of partly of what you've just said there, and the fact that in these last seven days, uh, even since our last podcast, there have been a number of things that have been happening around the world which are deeply concerning and um, we'll come to uh, a number of them during the show. W- one of them is that um, the British Parliament was literally, in an almost unprecedented way, disrupted uh, last week um, by, a, in many respects, a politically meaningless vote on the Gaza issue as to whether there was going to be a formal call um, for a ceasefire. This was the opposition parties, the Labour Party, the SNP, And without going into the details of the of the polity of the British Parliament, and how things are supposed to be done, things were not done properly. There was political manipulation. Uh, There was fear and intimidation. There were crowds actually outside that were throwing up a massive projection um, of uh, of free Palestine and stop the bombs and all of this on the houses of parliament. You had the intimidation of uh, MPs. You had the Speaker of the House who literally said that he was afraid for the lives of um, MPs in our own Houses of Parliament. Um, and uh, really, it, it became one of the most um, significant disruptions of parliamentary life. It was followed then by remarks by the one of the, um, uh, the Tory whips, uh, a politician named Lee Anderson, Um, who made remarks about what he felt was was the capture of the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, and others by uh, Islamism, um, basically by Islamic ideology. And of course, we've had weeks, week after week after week in Britain of um, these uh, protests, uh, blocking streets and and this past weekend, uh, blocking Tower Bridge and so on. And then, of course, what you've just said, we've had the debacle with South Africa, um, trying to take Israel to court, and now others joining in with these um, these sort of posturing and gesturing legal action with these international bodies, and so we felt let's let's do a a podcast on this, this this problem now this this rise of anti-Semitism and what some of the elements within it actually are. And I want Dan to comment in just a second on this because. For those of you who don't know, Dan is our um, fellow for um, international law. Basically, he specialises in international law and uh, international relations, and has a very interesting take on these things and a very good historical understanding of what's of what's gone on. Um, there was a there was a remark by um, a rabbi in Britain uh, a little while ago uh, that I found. Um, quite poignant, quite telling, Lord Sachs, he actually said this, he said, the hate that begins with Jews never ends with Jews. The appearance of anti-Semitism in a culture is the first symptom of a disease, the early warning sign of collective breakdown, end quote. Now, whilst we as Christians um, wouldn't say that uh, anti-Semitism is the first sign of a disease, we certainly would recognize it as one of the key cultural indicators of the beginnings of the breakdown of our society and um, what we're what we're seeing um, and as i say we'll come on to a number of the different factors that we think are playing a significant role in this Um, but what we are uh, beginning to see is a very very dangerous symptom that was of course seen in the 1930s uh in europe Um, and it begins with um, uh, various forms of marginalization, demonization, criticism, blaming. As cultures begin to decay, it is um, human nature to look for people to blame. It's human nature to look for uh, particular groups to blame, and uh, this is a kind of sadism, basically. It's a way of laying the punishment for the failure of your culture, maybe the failure of your economy, the failure of your society on a particular group of people or a particular subsection of the of the society and then say let's get them for it because they are at fault and what we're starting to see is a coalition of different groups um, beginning to uh, really focus on Jews um, and uh, this, is, this is profoundly disturbing. Now, before I ask Dan to comment, just one other thought, just by way of preamble here, to just to be clear that from a theological standpoint, um, as most people who listen to us know, the Ezra Institute does not come at these things um, and the question of Israel and the Jews from a dispensational point of view. Um, we're covenantal in our thinking. We're, we're reformational, reformed in our thinking. And so these concerns are not centered around a, a particular theological emphasis that arose in the 19th century with J.N. Darby and was popularized through the Schofield Bible and so on with, with, the, uh, with, the, with the theological novelty of dispensationalism. Far from it. And um, neither does it mean that we think that um, our our best ally in the region, um, uh, Israel, uh, gets a blank check to do whatever they want around the world just because it's a, 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 a largely Jewish state. Although, again, people make a mistake there. They think that Israel is purely a sort of ethno state. It isn't. A significant uh, chunk of the population are Arabs. Um, uh, living in peace and freedom um, in Israel. So this is not this is not uh, um, coming from some specific end times agenda um, uh, that uh, we've seen in the, in in the past in in the West. This concerns a much deeper and I think more significant issue, more significant problem, um, and um, and we're genuinely concerned about this as a ministry. And some of the voices that we're seeing, some of the people that are starting to even um, question the Holocaust, uh, raise questions about whether there really, whether there really was um, a, a mass execution uh, of the Jews in Europe. Um, and when those kinds of, I mean, questions, and we can, and I think we'll come back to that as well in terms of the. Uh, the, the historical certitude that we now have about the nature of the Holocaust. But you've got people literally arguing that, well, no, that they, there wasn't really a, um, a Holocaust of Jews. Basically, they weren't used to manual work. And so they were in these work camps and uh, they died off because they hadn't done a day's work before. Yeah. You know, these kinds of things are being said. This is deeply disturbing and troubling. So uh, l- let me put it back to you, Michael, uh, so that we can just uh, transition to Dan here, because I would really like him to to specifically comment on the, the legal issues that are being raised that you've just talked about, Zambia and South Africa. And then I think we need to to talk a bit about what's been the trigger for this, or at least now is being used as the excuse for all of this, which is the Israel-Gaza, um, Israel-Hamas, we should say, really, conflict in, in the Gaza region.
0: Yeah, Dan, I'm looking forward to hearing your comments on on this topic that we've opened up here. Joe, I, as we transition um, into kind of getting into the specifics, it's, a, it's ironic that as we get to the point where people are using the Jewish people as a scapegoat, as you've just talked about, It's at that time that they start denying the historical evidence for this happening in the past. So while it Mm -hmm. is starting to happen in the, uh, in the, in recent times, they are denying that it happened in the past, which is, which is completely ironic. And it, it tries to get them out of looking at history and going, Hey guys, we've made this mistake in the past. So Dan, why don't you try to unpack for us? A little about what is going on around the International Court of Justice. Why are these countries coming out and responding these this way to uh, the massacre that happened on October seventh by Hamas? Thanks, Michael. Uh,
2: Yeah, yeah, so I'll talk a little bit about the international law aspects of this. Now, we did a previous podcast a couple months ago, which we did deeper dive in international law. So we don't have time for that now, but. But very specifically, we have this thing called the uh, the Geneva Conventions, and one of the Geneva Conventions they are entered into in 1949, largely spurred on in part by what happened during the Holocaust. And we can talk more about that also, about the historical evidence for that. So one of the Geneva Conventions, there were several, one on treatment of POWs, but one was on genocide, and there are very specific definitions of what genocide constitutes. And Israel, of course, uh, which was the state of Israel, the modern state, was created in 1947. And um, actually, the U- United Nations immediately recognized. Him. In fact, Soviet Union and United States actually were in a race to recognize Israel, because at that time, uh, just because of the politics, the international politics situation. So Israel is a member of the, this Convention on Genocide now. Uh, The thing to understand, just very quickly about international law, is that international law is binding on states only when they give their consent, particularly to a treaty in this case. And therefore, if you're going to accuse a state of genocide, as uh, South Africa does, and evidently you mentioned a zombie, I hadn't heard that until just now, does, then you need to point actually to this treaty or convention to say where you know, this is what this. these are the acts of genocide. And then like any court, legal proceeding, these are the facts that support, that, that actually would support this. And South Africa and Zambia have no facts uh to support it. And so there is this movement among the left today. It's actually been ongoing for quite a while. It's called, what's called soft international law, that somehow there's this Kind of out there in the ether, these standards that states have to comply with. They're historically called peremptory norms. Just to be technical, one of them actually was genocide. But but so now we've actually got a convention, a treaty on genocide. So now what what some are trying to do is say, well, you know, genocide includes this and this and this beyond what's in the treaty. And if you look at the strict definitions, I mean, that's laws have specific meanings. And if you look at strict definitions, there's no way Israel is involved in committing genocide. So what this is, is really a political act. And quite often, international law actually is used by states, to, generally speaking, to achieve political ends. Sometimes that's good, sometimes it's bad, depending upon, of course, your perspective. But in this case, the African National Congress which basically is the ruling party now in South Africa. They were an ally of the PO all the way back to the 1960s as the Oscar Arafat because both groups were uh part of the oppressed world. And of course, the whole I know you guys have talked about this in the past, the whole Marxist notion of the oppressors and the oppressed. And so uh Israel supposedly is a colonizers, even though they're actually the indigenous peoples. It's amazing how. Every every country and indigenous peoples are held up in on a plat, on, on you know held up as mm-hmm. being the the just people except when it comes to Jews in in that area. So it's this is really a political act by South African and Zambia. The the South African case, uh, the International Court justices uh, basically refused to that they somewhat punted it, uh, but at least they for the time being they said no, we're not going to get involved. Uh, they did say, Israel, that you have to, you know, don't engage in, you have to honor things like proportionality and, and not killing of civilians. And those are all parts, traditional parts of the law of war in any event. Israel is the only country I'm aware of that before they actually attack an area, they actually tell people, if you're civilian, you need to leave. This would have been akin to the United States and our bombing, the, the Allies, U.S. and U.K., before they bombed Regensburg, for example, in World War II, Regensburg had this, this ball bearing factory. It was very essential for military hardware. It'd be like the United States tone and Britain say, well, before we bomb Regensburg ball bearing plant, we want all you civilians, you know, better get out of town. That never happened. And so by the standard that South Africa is trying to use based upon what Israel's done, if Israel's the guilty genocide, the United States and all the allies in World War II as well, because there were a tremendous amount of civilian deaths in World War II, because that was just uh, that was just collateral damage in essence. So this argument that Israel is committing genocide has no legal basis. It's purely at a political attempt hmm. on the part of allies of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which in Fatah, which is the main group, the PLO, which is the Palestinian Authority. It's it's in some ways it's a political payback that they're engaging in. So, like I say, that with going a lot more detail, you know, the international legal aspects in one sense are complicated, but in the other sense are very simple. Israel has not violated the specific treaty, the Genocide Convention on genocide, and therefore there's no basis for those claims whatsoever.
0: That's a really helpful conclusion, Dan, and it actually leads right into the conversation about what is the pretext or what is the the, the preeminent story that is used for all of this political posturing. And um, it's really interesting. Uh, if we look at Israel's Declaration of Independence um, – what we see in that declaration is a very similar declaration of independence to other western countries a, a desire for peace a desire for law and order and so israel and joe i'm really glad that you also made the made the distinction between um Looking at Israel as a nation and not just looking at them as uh, a, w- with a get out of jail free card because we have a disp- dispensational lens on, but even when we're not when we're not doing that, when we're being careful to address this nation, Dan, you've just mentioned there's no legal basis for these accusations, and if we go back to their historical texts, if we go back to their Declaration of Independence, uh, you know. They're 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 appealing to the Belfort Declaration from 1917. They're uh, they're appealing to uh, the League of Nations, and they are uh, they're appealing to the Arab nations right within the text to live peaceably. And so, um, Joe, why don't you take us, uh, you know, to the narrative that's been that's been pushed now to this occupation? So, of course, there was. Uh, of course, there was a displacement of of uh, some individuals from the land when Israel declared themselves a nation. Of course, there was some conflict in the same way as the American Revolution when they declared their independence. But um, why now is Palestine seen with such an innocent veneer, and Israel is constantly villainized? What's the story, or that's being told to us, Joe?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, um, I'm going to I'm going to pump this over to Dan in just a moment. Um, Let me say this first, though, about what what you've just said. I think we, of course, need to look at this um, and analyze it politically. Um, We need to think about the religious worldviews that are involved, of course, because there is no understanding of the uh, situation in in the Middle East without understanding the religious worldview in particular of Islam um, but there is a there is a spiritual dimension to this um, and, and to the to the rise of, of, of anti-semitism it was obviously uh, spiritual when you look at uh, 1930s Germany there was a radical vilification of Christianity uh, in the Nazi Party, N- the Nazi uh, Party, of course, sought to control the Church. Hitler wanted to manipulate the Church. He wanted to Nazify the Church, and of course, that's when there were um, faithful men, faithful leaders, and pastors. Bonhoeffer, of course, most famously, um, and uh, the um, the declaration. I'm trying to remember the name of that particular declaration off the top of my head. It's just gone. Um, that uh, that they that they wrote to resist go ahead michael yes the Barm. thank you the barman declaration um to resist the nazification of the of the church Yeah, uh, hitler in his uh, famous book mein kampf said that christianity was the most fatal and seductive lie that ever existed and he considered it as having a jude uh, a judeo root he, he blamed the jews for christianity he considered them to be um, stammering nomads, uh, literally, that wandered out of the desert and brought the Ten Commandments, uh, which he considered a manifestation of weakness. Um, He thought of Christianity as as greatly weakening um, the West, in particular. Of course, the Aryan people, he thought, had been weakened by Christianity, by uh, the Ten Commandments, by um, God's law. Um, And so, when you actually look at Nazism and its occultism, its paganism, you see the spiritual root of what was going on. It wasn't just political. The manifestation was political, of course, but at the root of its utter hatred um, of God, of Christ, and then targeting specifically the Jews and then any pastors, Christians, churches that stood against Nazism were then swept up into the same um, uh, persecution. Um, so we do have to remember that now what why is it that when we think about the issue of anti-semitism what why is it that the jews themselves become the the focus of this kind of hatred what we've come to call anti-semitism and i think we have to look at the spiritual root of that which is that the, the 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 ethnic jew and of course since uh the 1947 and the sort of nationhood again of Israel. Although Dan is absolutely right that the truly indigenous people of the Levant area <coughs> were the Jews, um, and yet they're not lionized in the way that indigenous populations are um, from other regions. Quite, quite the contrary. But the Jew is a reminder, and Israel is a reminder. It's a, it's like a stone in the shoe of those who reject the gospel. Amen. It's a stone in the shoe of those who reject the living God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember Jesus said, many will come from the East and the West, and they will sit down in the kingdom of heaven with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. You look at the book of Hebrews, the great cloud of witnesses that the apostles talk about. Well, these are from the nation of Israel. Uh, and so even though we reject a two peoples, uh uh, theological paradigm um of uh, there is only one people of god jew and gentile ephesians 2 the wall of partition is broken down nonetheless the the ongoing existence of the ethnic jew and now to make matters worse for those who are hostile to to god and to the gospel the existence again the re-establishment of a nation a a a, a political uh, manifestation Um, of israel again is this reminder of the covenants it's a reminder of the word of god it's a reminder historical physical visible reminder that the claims of the living god the claims of the lord jesus christ who is the messiah remember christ anointed one he's the son of david Uh, you can't separate christ from abraham isaac and jacob uh, the, the the called out people who were, who bore the seed of the woman, and as Paul says, who carried the the covenants of promise, um, we who were far away have now been brought near. The ethnic Jew, even in their apostasy, and uh, it, it is a bizarre phenomenon. It's not we're not denying the the phenomenon, and it's actually this phenomenon has the same spiritual root. There's the phenomenon that some Jews hate themselves look we're seeing this we're seeing that that's not a shock because we see yeah. that phenomenon in the west today the west today what is what has happened in the west the west today hates itself why does it hate itself why why is the marxist ideology managed to get western people hating themselves despising themselves saying that they're they're vile colonizers and 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 haters and so on um uh, the self-hatred is actually a hatred not of the West as such but the Christian West the hatred is actually of Christianity what shaped and formed the West and there have been there have been good examples would be people like Karl Marx um Sigmund Freud there have been um self-hating uh Jews of course uh that's true um but this this uh This rise in anti-Semitism, this rise in in the hatred of of Jewish people has this visceral uh, spiritual root. And it's why it arises when you see regimes uh, arising in the context of collapse. Uh, when you see um, people looking for somebody to blame as I said at the beginning of the program when people are turning their back on Christianity and they're turning their back on God one of the ways that expresses itself is through Jew hatred and the hatred of Israel now Dan I'm going to ask him to give us a bit of a a history uh, lesson on, on some of this we have to factor in here Islam and um Islam, and without going into a long uh, uh, monologue now on, on the nature of Islam, let's just remember that Hamas's founding documents deny the right of Israel to exist. Uh, it fundamentally denies the validity of Israel or its right to exist. And Islam, as well as being an anti-Christian apologetic fundamentally, because the um, the, the texts of Islam the fundamental texts of Islam, um, including centrally the Quran, are an anti-Christian apologetic, but they're also anti-Jewish. And Islam has always been um, anti-Jewish. That's why you see the Islamic world tends to rally around the so-called Palestinian cause. um, And maybe we'll come at the end to the coalition of Islam and the radical left, because you see that coalition everywhere. If you look at crowds in Britain, for example, in protests, they're half they're half leftists and they're and they're half um, Muslims. But the Islamic world tends to coalesce around, and it's the one unifying factor, the one thing that will bring Sunnis and Shias and various different groups of Muslims together, is their mutual hatred of Israel mm-hmm. and the Jews. Um, again, it's a spiritual religious root. But I think it would be instructive because so much of this. Contemporary anti-Semitism is built around the the current conflict in Gaza between Israel and Hamas. I think it'd be really helpful if Dan talked a bit about the history of the region and this whole claim of a Palestinian people. Dan, can you talk to us about that? Yeah, thanks, Joe. Um, great comments
2: about the spiritual root of all this. So the term Palestine actually was an invention of the Romans. and. Um, one thing that if you look, first of all, at the region of the von to what we now call Judea, Samaria, that whole region, there's only been one state, actually two states in history, where it's actually been a local a, a government or a state of the people who live there. The Old Testament kingdom of Israel and the modern state of Israel. All the other periods of history, of course, before the, before the Old Testament kingdom of Israel, we had... Canaanite city-states, but, but that was very much, in that time, kind of the nature. But what you had, of course, you had the establishment of the Old Testament kingdom of Israel, mm-hmm. and then because unfaithfulness of both Israel and Judah, of course, we had the split after Solomon. Uh, eventually, the northern kingdom was became a vassal to the Assyrian Empire, eventually was destroyed. The southern kingdom became a vassal to the Babylonian Empire, was destroyed. So after that, until the establishment of the modern state of israel you always had a an empire or a a ruling authority that was outside the land so you have the assyrians and the babylonians of course we look at daniel's prophecies you have the medes and the persians then you have the greeks under the successors to alexander's empire then you have the romans and then the romans created this word called palestine to refer to this area and then after the Roman Empire you had the Byzantine Empire then when they were basically take uh their yeah. their control of this of the of this area was went to Saladin and the Muslims then you had the Ottoman Turks up until uh post yeah. World War one and yeah. then you have the British mandate for Palestine and eventually so you've only actually had one state in two different versions in history that actually has been the local People actually having their own state, state of Israel. So this notion that there's a state called Palestine is a pure legal fiction. The Palestinian Authority was basically what Israel agreed to. This quasi-government organization was to administer what's called the West Bank, which actually is historically Judea and Samaria. This so-called West Bank, actually under international law, is still part of Jordan and jordan after the 67 war did not want it back gaza was actually part of, of of egypt after the 67 war you know because israel went all the way almost to cairo they controlled the sinai and then after the 73 war they gave that back to to egypt when the peace treaty between uh, Begin and uh, sadat but the point is there there never in history has been a country called palestine there is no such thing as palestine it nearly flag- was no flag it's all a fiction and so just i just read an article yesterday about the uh, and of course the palestinian authority is incredibly corrupt it's run like a mafia organization a boss who was the successor to airfax a boss is a terrorist and the whole palestinian authority is run by fatah which is a terrorist party and so this palestinian prime minister resigned yesterday because of pressure, I think, from the West, because of Palestinian, that the Palestinian Authority has been so corrupt. But in his comments, he talked about recovering all of Palestine. And so this notion, as as one of both Joe and my, one of our favorite political commentators, Mark Levin, always says, the two-state solution is the final solution. Hmm. Because there's no way, in fact, we, we've actually seen what happens. In one sense, when Hamas basically... Beat uh, the Palestinian Authority in elections two thousand and seven, They kicked them out. What do we have? I mean, Gaza has been like a second state, and we see what they do. They're constantly engaged in terrorism against Israel, and these attacks, of course, are the worst. And so if you had a so-called Palestinian state existing alongside Israel, it would constantly be at war with Israel. And of course, this isn't even to mention the the real, Bad actor in the Middle East, which yeah. is Iran, using all these different proxies, the Houthis and Yemen, mm-hmm. the, the Hamas, even though Hamas is Sunni, they're not Shia as the Iran, as Joe said, they, they tend to make an alliance because Israel, then you got Hezbollah as their proxy in Lebanon. And so Iran obviously is seeking to be the dominant power in the Middle East. Versus Turkey historically. Erdogan wants to kind of get back in that role of the, the Turkish Sultan. The point is the Middle East is a cauldron of instability, but the one thing that unites these different groups is the fact that Israel exists. Now, if, if Israel was gotten rid of, we had just a so-called secular Palestinian state. Actually, if you look at Palestinian nationalism, they actually call for greater Palestine. You know what that means? No more Jordan. And perhaps not even Syria. So all, all a if we had a quote unquote two state solution, that second state of quote unquote Palestine would constantly be at war with Israel. And if Israel was gotten rid of then they'd be at war with their Arab neighbors. You know, it's it's so interesting. If you go back to scripture, and we see that uh-huh. the prophecy regarding uh, Ishmael, and it said that, you know, the sons of Ishmael, their hands will constantly be against their brother. We've seen this. Uh-huh. So just to kind of sum this up then, Palestine, as there is no state called Palestine, and it would be a disaster for Israel if there was, as we've actually seen a kind of quasi-Palestinian
1: state in lost. So, Dan, doesn't that fundamentally then make a also a fiction of the charge of occupation? Because, Absolutely. Because the constant refrain is that, you know, this isn't – so a couple of things struck me when you were speaking. First of all, this chant – from the river to the sea palestine will be free that they're chanting all over these western cities including london yes and people denying that this doesn't mean uh that, that this of course it means the, it. the total destruction of israel which is precisely what it means but can you comment on the whole notion then of you know the charge of occupation yeah. and the um and and the fact that the, israel this tiny piece of land currently about the size of wales um you know the the, the smallest part of the, uh, the, the 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 union um of of the british union um the egypt doesn't want these re- refugees it would be very very simple for egypt to open its border let the refugees through while israel uh, finished dealing with hamas the insurgency um but they don't want them they don't they don't open the border uh nobody seems to want uh, uh the the Hamas influence in their territory. Um, and yet you get this constant talk of occupation and f- freeing Palestine as though you're talking about a historic state right. that has been overrun and occupied by an invading force. So this is the, the language that they use, this sort of, and it's a kind of Marxist language too. It, they, they've adopted the Marxist rhetoric. They pick it up, they utilize it. And it makes um, and it uses it, it kind of plays on the whole idea of colonialism, uh, because of course that's the big thing that the left uh, hates: right. uh, the history of, um, of of British influence uh, around the globe and the supposed evils of, of 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 colonialism. And Israel is then identified with that. It's a colonial power in the region, dominating these poor, persecuted Muslims. This poor, persecuted Muslim state. And yet, this tiny little bit of land called Israel, surrounded by its enemies, um, is is picked on politically by the rest of the world. Can you give us some insight on on the, on those things? Yeah, and by the way, just when you're talking about Marxist
2: influence, you know, the Palestine and the PLO is actually a coalition of different groups, and one of the one of the groups that used to be leading out front was called the Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine, it was led by led by Namib by a man named George Habash, who is a dying world Marxist. So you have among these strains of Palestine, you have these Islamic strains, but you also have these Marxist strains and they do work together. But uh, when you were talking, it reminded me of an article I read years ago. Uh, I don't know if it was a National Review perhaps, but it said, why does the world hate Israel? It was really interesting because it said actually, because it, it, what it really was saying is that the world hates Israel because, and, and this is from the perspective of, of, of these Israel haters, because the United States has actually established Israel as a colonial presence in the Middle East. And therefore, the, the issue really isn't with Israel so much as with the United States and the West, it's like it's a stalking horse. Mm-hmm. But of course, we, we see we hear all this time now they're colonizers, and whenever you see that, that's now the latest version of the Marxists. You know, yep. Marxists constantly are coming up with different terms, different strategies to try to get the point across. And one of the latest is colonizer occupiers. The idea that the Jews are colonizers, I, I guess, from the perspective of the Canaanites, maybe they are. <laughs> But that's like 3,000, 4,000 years ago, right? I mean, only the Canaanites perhaps can really make that claim. Because mm-hmm. yes, Israel did go and defeat the Canaanites. But after that, the, mm-hmm. the Arabs of that time, I mean, there's so much here. First of all, Egypt historically wasn't an Arab nation anyway. It only became Arabized when Islam conquered Egypt. Exactly. So at the time mm-hmm. that the Jews actually left their captivity, and went, and of course they were Israelites because we know Jews are actually the sons of Judah. But the, the Israelites, all the tribes, when they left the captivity in Egypt, went to the Promised Land. There were these just various different Canaanite city states. There weren't any Arabs at the time. They were all living in, in 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 Arabia, and and so you know later on, of course, the Arabs expanded. But 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 during this time, so the Jews were actually. It, like I said, unless you're a Canaanite, you can't really accuse them of being colonized. They were there first. Mm-hmm. And so they, And one of the big reasons, of course, for the push for the state of Israel, and it didn't just start because of the Holocaust. It actually started in the late 19th century. But the Holocaust really mm-hmm. amplified the need for the Jews. They said, look, we need to have our own state so that we can protect ourselves against this. And so Israel has constantly been in a state of war since its existence. What happened, of course, in 1948, you had the five Arab countries, uh, saudi uh, Egypt, Syria, Iraq, uh, Jordan, and the Saudis all descended upon Israel. And at that time, it was even smaller than it is Uh. the the pre-'67 borders. And in the so-called Palestinians, which were just Arabs living there, they were actually told to leave. And so a lot of them actually abandoned their property and they left. And so this, this notion that the Jews are colonizers and occupiers, a, like I say, unless you're a Canaanite, you really can't make that argument.
1: And it's the case also, even though we've said that, the, the, um, the, that there would be a, a tremendous problem for the Jews if there was a, a, a second, if there was created a state of Palestine the Gaza Strip has basically been used, as you pointed out, as a launching pad. The reason that they, they, uh, as you say, Iran supports and feeds what's going on there is that it makes the ideal launching point for endless war against Israel. They don't want, uh, uh, they actually don't even want the two-state solution, because unless i have mistaken, Dan, three times yes. the Palestinians have been offered
2: arafat er, rejected the ozo in the 19 uh late 90s he actually rejected he was presented by that time Yitzhak rabin presented them as a state and arafat rejected it
1: That's yeah right yeah so three times it's been a, re- a rejection of the of, of a of an offer of a, of a of a two-state solution anyway so the depth of the of, of the problem has that religious root michael
0: I want to try to connect all of the commentary together here as we move into our next section. So, Joe, you referred to the religious route, and we've also talked about how the the, stu- the two state uh, solution is is just propaganda. If we if we add these two things together, the idea that the fact that the Jewish nation just says. We ought to exist like it's, it's insistence on establishing a nation that again, if you look at their founding documents, very similar to the West, they are insisting on creating a nation that is governed by the rule of law and uh, both the religious and, and, and political manifestations that, that, that takes are an affront to Islam and the le- uh, and the left, and that's why we can see this coalition of Islam and the left for now, because Islam gets to say these uh, occupiers, and the Marxists get to say these colonizers. But this is where I, I want you guys to unpack this a little bit, because this is the exact same problem that every Western nation is now facing. If if a Western nation just does not stand up and insist that it actually has the right to exist and insist on the rule of law, you know, uh, one of our other fellows at the Ezra Institute, Andrew Sandlin, has just written a book, Virtuous Liberty. Joe, I know you contributed to that book. You know, basically, he goes back and talks about the establishment of of, of law being the bedrock of liberty. Uh, he says, uh, uh, "Liberty, uh, liberty is virtuous, and virtue is required for liberty." And so we we merge this uh, theological um, attack and this political maneuvering, which is also an attack um, on Israel. And we, and, and we can see why now there's a coalition of Islam and the left because they get to use the same language. But, but Joe, everybody, whenever we hear this, whenever we see this, you know, you see people marching downtown New York city, you know, queers for Palestine. And you, you, you go on Twitter and you just, you, you see, um, you know, some guy, you know, flying the rainbow flag and then getting chased out of a pro-Palestinian protest. You know, everybody kind of chuckles. How is this even possible? But they're really using each other for this narrative. Where do you think it goes, Joe? Like, that's the thing. You know, the left doesn't seem to see anything coming. Where does this coalition Mm -hmm. of Islam and the left go?
1: Go for Mm -hmm. it. Well, it, it's, it's definitely the old the enemy of my enemy is my friend uh, scenario. Um, there are obviously things about um, Islam um, and uh, Marxism that, that uh, correlate to one another. First of all, both deny the living God. I mean, let's remember that. Um, uh, th- th- this talk of, you know, Abrahamic faiths as though the Islamic concept of God could be included in a biblical understanding is wrong, and I would encourage anybody who's struggling with that to read um, Sam Solomon's book not the same God um, uh, to, to understand the 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 reality there. Second of all, you have to remember that um, uh, Islam itself was born uh, in in the in the context of um, Jewish resistance to uh, Muhammad and his claims to be a prophet, and there was, of course, the famous uh, massacre uh, and beheadings of Jews uh, in the in the in the life of Muhammad when they rejected him as a prophet. And so, um, the rejection of um, uh, the uh, well, like, let's let's call it the, uh, the the biblical foundation. I mean, we we all recognise, we should recognise, of course, that Orthodox Judaism. Has long since departed um, from, because of course, there are different groups within um, Jewish faith today. You've got completely secular and atheistic Jews. You you have um, conservative Jews, uh, liberal Jews, and then you have the ultra-Orthodox, and the Talmud would be most important to uh, to them. Um, And that's that's Pharisaic. It's the kind of it's the kind of uh, view of things that Jesus was up against when he was dealing with the, the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, so, of course, we need to recognize that diversity uh, uh, amongst the Jews in terms of their own uh, uh, perspectives. But um, Islam itself, uh, as well as the, the Marxist left, deny the word of God. um Uh, and deny that the God of Scripture, they also have essentially a a totalitarian view of the state. Remember that, too. um, And a pretty much socialist view of economic life. Islam and um, uh, Marxism share a totalitarian view of political life um, and an anti-capitalist mentality. So if you think about um, uh, Islamic banking and the Islamic approach to money, Um, There are some considerable similarities to the to the left. It's anti free markets um, and it has a a statist totalitarian view of political life. Um, It also has its own kind of utopian. They share a sort of utopian vision as well of the future for Islam. It's about the establishment of the enforcement of Sharia upon the world. Uh, in terms of a uh, a totalitarian uh, understanding of of human government and the imposition of Sharia law, um, which is Islam is Sharia, Sharia is Islam. Um, And from this, a utopia will emerge. For the Marxists, of course, although they say that the state will eventually wither away, um, (laughs) the route to get there for them is exactly the same. You must impose, if necessary, by violence. Um, uh, a Marxist revolution upon the world, you need the iron fist of the state to do that, And then maybe out of that somehow the state will wither away and uh, will be living in this glorious utopia. So there are certain touch points that um, unite them. Um, on the other hand, there are also things that in the modern contemporary expression are very, very different. Um, which is why I think, Michael, you mentioned probably a little bit tongue-in-cheek the whole queers for Palestine thing, because there is a fundamental contradiction between what Islamic law uh, would say about homosexuality and what the modern radical left would say about queer theory. Um, and, you know, the, the the tool of critical theory that the modern left uses, and particularly the whole area of sexuality, would be at the opposite end of the spectrum. Um, I think, an interesting personality that sort of brings these two together in his very confused person is Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, yeah. who claims to be a, a Muslim, um, uh, but has been regarded by the Orthodox as a sort of heretic, um, but nonetheless claims to be a Muslim. And yet he's a radical cultural Marxist, um, promoting all of the most uh, radical uh, parts of queer theory and the the, the LGBTQ uh, agenda, and yet somehow, in his person, he ironically brings these two streams uh, uh, together, and it in a, in a way that expresses itself, of course, in 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 a, in a fashion that is anti-Semitic. Um, he, of course, is in a very sensitive political position. There's only so much he can do, and a lot of these people hedge their bets. But this coalition, and I know that Dan's got something I think is very important to point out, which I'm going to leave for for him to say. Um uh but it is it's very significant that there is the enemy of my enemy is my friend coalition working together because the ultimate enemy, of course, is Christ, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and a and a, a as we've said before, a historical physical expression of the reality of the Bible, um are the Jewish people, whether or not they It's a matter of an accident of birth, whether they're Marxist or whatever else that the fact they happen to be Jewish. The point is, is the existence of ethnic Jews is this perpetual reminder of the Christ, Um, uh, even though, uh, of course, many, many Jews reject the Christ. So. We're in this uh, interesting uh, phase in history where it goes in some respects is is anyone's guess. I think that we're going to get to a situation where the contradictions between the Islamic vision and view and the uh, progressive Marxist view uh, mean that they turn on one another and start eating one another. um, Because that kind of, of, of coalition is only valuable to the point at which they believe, oh, we've reached a tipping point now. Now we don't need each other anymore, uh, at which point it'll be interesting to see um, where where all of that um, actually goes. But they're united in their hatred of the God of the Bible and of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that frequently expresses itself as anti-Semitism. But as Jonathan Sachs says, it never stays with, it never remains with anti-Judaism. That's why During the Christmas period, you had all these pro-Palestinian protesters in Toronto, for example, disrupting uh, Santa Claus parades and disrupting people's Christmas and their Christmas shopping and all of those kinds of things. um, Because first it's Saturday they want to destroy and then it's Sunday. Um, And that is the pattern. And you saw it in um, uh, Nazi Germany. And we've seen it throughout the history of the rise of Islam and its empire building. Uh, a very good book uh, in, that uh, should be read if people still live under this uh, illusion that um, uh, that somehow there was a golden age of Islamic peace. Uh, there's a brilliant book called "The Myth of the Andalusian Paradise." Um, the Myth of the Andalusian Paradise, which you should read uh, to, to to understand that the the claim that there was ever a time when um, Christians and Jews enjoyed um, uh, peace and freedom and equality before the law under Islam, there's never been such a period, never, um, including Spain. So it's difficult to predict where it's going to go, but I think that the, the likelihood is when they feel that they no longer need one another, that even though they've got these commonalities, they will turn on each other. But I but I do think that um, Dan has a, a significant point to make here with respect to, to, to nationalism and national socialism that I think is helpful. Yeah, what, one,
2: one quick, to, just before I get to that, to interject. Uh, the, the Quran, of course, they claim that uh, Jesus actually, that he's called Isha, and the Quran mm-hmm. is a prophet. And they talk about the return of Isha. And the Quran says when Isha returns, because they believe that Jesus was never crucified, he was caught up, two things are going to happen. He's going to end the poll tax and break the cross what that means is the poll tax was something that Christians and Jews could pay yeah. during the time to, to to basically keep, it's either, you. Yeah, either you have to either convert to Islam, you're going to lose your head, or you could pay the poll tax. So what that means, in the poll tax means, either converts, either you convert to Islam when Isha supposedly returns, their Isha, or you lose your head, and then breaking the cross basically means that Christianity is going to be wiped out. So, this idea that there was this time where Christians, Jews, and Muslims ever lived in peace is rubbish. Now, uh, to get to the point about uh, anti-Semitism, and I think we we probably at this point might also transition to talking about that and the whole you know neo-Nazis in the United mm-hmm. States and, and what's going on in the West, particularly the U.S. Um, so national socialism as an ideology uh, was... Uh, is is in fact a not a right wing ideology, but rather it's a left wing ideology. If you look at the theorists of National Socialism journey Germany, in the 30s and even in the 20s, Otto Strasser in many ways is the godfather of National Socialism, and and it was a leftist ideology. And of course, Ernst Röhm, was who was murdered by Hitler to appease the German military in 1934 he talked all the time about this is a proletarian ideology. And so the one of the reasons the Nazis and the communists had such conflict in the thirties was because they were competing for the loyalty of the working class. And so the bourgeoisie is, if you look at actual Nazi ideology, you'll see they hate the bourgeoisie. Mm-hmm. And so what, what has happened of course, and, and, and by the way, Soviet Union is responsible for Germany for starting World War II. They both attacked Poland. Yeah. What What happened is during this time period, actually, all of the communist parties, I mean, they were so confused. And, of course, this was Stalin. So prior to the Soviet non-aggression pact, we saw the communist parties are very anti-Nazi, and particularly the Spanish Civil War. When the Soviet-German uh, non-aggression pact happened in 1939, all of a sudden now, the entire t- tone was changed towards Nazis. And now it's like, well, they were kind of our comrades. And then of course, when Nazi Germany attacked Soviet Union in 1941, it went back. And so after even in the thirties, except for this brief period, the left wanted nothing to do, of course, with the stench of Nazism uh because that's that's a right-wing ideology but in fact it's a left-wing ideology national socialism is a revolutionary ideology its whole goal is to destroy what happened before hitler would pay lip service what happened before but it was actually the creation of a new thing that's one of the the hallmarks of marxism of any leftist ideology so national socialism is not the same as marxism but actually they have a tremendous amount of comments the power of the state they can both control the economy mm-hmm. And, and they both are working
1: class movements. And, the working, the the, the 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 National Socialist German German Workers', Workers Party. Party. In fact,
2: it, used, it originally was called the German Workers' Party. And so it was actually created in 1918 by Strasser and others in response because they thought, well, the communists were associated with the Jews and therefore they're the ones that stabbed Germany back. Of course, Hitler made a big deal about this. But One of the reasons the Nazis hated the communists so much was they thought it was all a Jewish conspiracy. It wasn't because it was a like us conservatives going against the left. It's totally different. So when when we think about this then, and we look at the rise of anti-Semitism, and a lot of people think, well, how can again the left has pushed this notion that the left is not anti-Semitic. It can't be. It's only the right. And so they push this notion. Therefore, when we see we have these anti-Semites in the U.S. Congress, for example, Rashida Tlaib and, and Omar and AOC. Uh, Many people like, well, we're we're the left. We're not anti-Semites. We're the left. And that's utter nonsense because anti-Semitism actually is a product
1: of the left. Which is why it's the same in England. The Labour Party, the Socialist Party, has had terrible problems from the time of Jeremy Corbyn, well, before the time of Jeremy Corbyn, but right up to the present. MPs have been, even in the last few weeks in the Labour Party for saying anti-Semitic things, have been thrown out of the party. Keir Starmer is desperately trying to get control of of the Socialist Party himself. Um, uh, In fact, I think Keir Starmer's wife is actually Jewish and he's desperately trying to uh, figure out a way to try and root out the anti-Semitism. Because it's so deeply rooted in the left. Sorry it, to interrupt.
2: No, it's quite all right. And so what's happened in the United States, of course, we, you know, we do have these skinheads and these neo Nazis on the right, and so the left and the media they want to associate anyone who's a conservative, whether you're a Trump supporter, and this goes way back before Trump. I mean, this and for years and years, if you're a conservative on the so-called right then that means that you at least are mildly anti-Semitic. You're a racist automatically. And, of course, on the left, we're incapable of racism. Mm-hmm. We're incapable of anti-Semitism. And yet the anti-Semitism you see is very much a leftist, is part of left-wing ideology, absolutely to the core. And so you'll also hear this argument, well, Marx and Trotsky were Jews, so how can— communism and Bolshevism be anti-semitic. Actually, most communist Bolsheviks were not Jews. And both Marx and Trotsky completely uh, disavowed their Jewish heritage yes. anyway. They want nothing to do with it. So the, the point is this when when we see people in this country that are anti Semitic, whether they're neo-Nazis, whether they're Marxist, it is and actually Nazism actually is a left-wing ideology. So this attempt to paint conservatives and christians as being anti-semitic is is completely a ruse and a
1: lie last last comment then before i hand back to to michael dan just for you then would be because we're running out of time but um we've, we've started to see some again it's associated by the media um who call themselves nationalists some uh, who even might try and say they're christian nationalists and we know of course right. that maybe we'll do another show on this but um Whenever you talk about nationalism, the first thing you have to do is define exactly what exactly. you mean, because there are so many different versions, many different. Yeah. Um, but there are some let's just let's just say there are some that are found within that that movement at the moment who are drifting in this anti-Semitic direction. And they and, they, and one of the hallmarks is they're also statist. Yeah, they tend, even though they came to be on, on the right, they see the state in this very Aristotelian sense that it's the top of this hierarchy. Um, and um, they think that the state needs to come down with the sort of iron fist and iron hand, um, and 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 we see within it the the emergence in some quarters of anti-Semitic attitudes. And yet they think they're they think they're conservative, but actually, where are they getting their the
2: worldview? Yeah, th- their worldview is it, it's it's essentially a left-wing leftist ideology, and you're right, you, one of the hallmarks of any left-wing ideology is statism. Uh, and in fact, um, I, I think if you actually were to look at the left-right perspective, you on the right, the far right would actually be anarchists because they don't want any government. And then you, next to them would be libertarians and move over kind of, and we can talk another time, different libertarian conservatism, I like Andrew's remark about virtue is a very interesting comment. But the farther you go to the left, the more status it becomes. And so even though these people that are posing as conservatives on the right, people like Nick Fuentes and mm-hmm. others who are spouting this anti-Semitism, they're actually leftists mm-hmm. because they are status. And that's one of the hallmark of
0: any left-wing ideology
2: is the state is going to
0: control everything. I think returning this... Conversation back to the spiritual roots of of the issue is that, you know, those who may start on the right and see themselves on the right, the more they reject God's word for the basic categories and definitions of individuals and nationhood and all of those things, and the more they accept a, a naturalistic worldview is when they start moving towards the left. So you can have a very inconsistent worldview. Uh, where you're out, you know, you know, I promote the family. I'm, I'm pro-life. I'm, 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 I'm not, I'm against abortion. And, and yet you can be very confused when you move away from scripture's basic definitions of humanity. And so I think that's also, um, of course, the left, as you guys have said uh, very well, Dan wants to paint, the, the brush of all uh, all of those on the right as, as these neo-Nazis. But in reality, you have people who began on the right and are moving towards the left as they start rejecting God's word. And that's why when we have these conversations about nationalism, you know, like, I I can't help right now in the United States, but being labeled as a Christian nationalist. I just interviewed uh, Dusty Devers, a wonderful Christian man, pastor, putting out great godly legislation in Oklahoma. You couldn't help but have him labeled as a Christian nationalist. And so we are trying to define terms and journey through this. And I've always appreciated, Joe, and we've talked about this subject in the past, that we're calling people back to to the Lord, and we're calling people back to the definitions that the Lord has given. So, Joe, some things that you've mentioned in the past, you know, just in our personal conversations, you know, nationhood is de- defined by covenantalism, where we are, a, we are, a, we are a people that are agreeing upon a constitution. We are, we are not a tribe. We we are not a kin. We are not a racial group. We are we are agreeing upon a constitution. We're returning to the rule of law based upon God's God's law. And all of these ways we're able to hopefully call back these people who want to have these important conversations about nationhood and where should we go as a nation? And I'm going to link this back to the Israel conversation. Israel is insisting that they must exist. And they are insisting on having a constitution that rules their country. And that is an offense now to anybody who is trying to either from a Marxist perspective or an Islamic perspective, tear down the actual nation. And it's going to require uh, those of us who want to remain on the right for the, you know, as being correct to uphold and and cling to the word of God in order to hold things together here.
1: Let me, um, let me just, as you wrap this up, let me just uh, uh, close with a, with, a, with a quote from a, a great Jewish scientist, Albert Einstein, because uh, uh, I think it's a reminder to all of us uh, of something important as Christians right now. He said, the world is in greater peril from those who tolerate or encourage evil than from those who actually commit it. And uh, if we are, there's a lot of truth to that. If we're in a situation where we actually tolerate evil or encourage it, even though we may not have part, directly participated. So this, this issue of anti-Semitism, we may, uh, we may not be um, out there chanting from the river to the sea. We, we may not be putting bottles through shop windows of, 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 of Jews. Um, We may not be engaged in in, um, ourselves in direct public slurs against them. But if we don't resist it, if we don't speak against it, if we tolerate it or in any way encourage it, then actually we are complicit and are probably more dangerous than the few hoodlums um, who who, who may carry out some of these anti-Semitic attacks. Um, silence in the face of these things is very dangerous. And that's why the Ezra Institute wanted to make crystal clear again, as we have done for the last few months uh, on this issue, um, that uh, we have to stand with Christ and with righteousness and we're not going to sit quietly by and tolerate or encourage evil.
0: No, that's great, Joe. And Dan, thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciated there, specifically at the end, helping everybody identify that even though we've got all of this mudslinging, whenever we're falling into anti-Semitism and statism, that's really coming from a leftist perspective and duping people from the right into that. And so everybody, we encourage you Return to the categories of God's word, you know the the word of God. We're all created equal in His image. Uh, we are uh, uh, we are called to uh, love our neighbor as ourselves. We're 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 told that you know the 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 family of God. When we when we are. Um, when we come to Christ and we are interwoven into the family of God, that there is no Jew, nor Greek, nor male, nor female in all of that sense of we, we are bound together by Christ and Joe. So it's a great final reminder, Dan, thanks for being on the show and listeners. We want to remind you as always, we're talking about our Lord Jesus Christ here, of course, from Romans 36 from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon.